my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict Ironjaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That way. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, your escaped patient from a mental hospital, Josh Baker, covers six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. This episode features sorority slashing, cyber death, and crying ghosts. Come jump into the water with me where we can float around and talk about spooky movies. Number 1, Sorority House Massacre, 1986, directed by Carol Frank. A girl named Beth stays at a sorority house for a weekend. She has weird dreams there. A man named Bobby escapes a psychiatric hospital and starts killing people. Bobby shows up at the sorority house. It used to be where he lived before he killed his family. Bobby kills everyone but Beth, who happens to be his sister, Laura. Beth kills Bobby. Bobby is the killer. Within the first five minutes, I knew that Bobby and Beth were siblings that used to live in the house that became the sorority house. They lived in the house until Bobby murdered the rest of their family. If that was supposed to be a twist, it was not. Sorority House Massacre is about as close as you can get to a Halloween ripoff. The only difference is the actual blood relation between the killer and final girl. Sorority House Massacre is a mouthful, so I'll just refer to it as Sahoma for the rest of this section. Sahoma is a mess. It does have some really thought out visuals and ideas. One example is when Beth sees an old photo of herself and her sisters as kids. The photo starts bleeding. Little Beth starts bleeding from her arm in the photo since that's where she was slashed by Bobby. And the other sisters start bleeding from two spots center mass since Bobby stabbed them and killed them real good. Besides the bloody picture, I also like the parts where Beth saw Bobby's knife randomly stabbed through things like a mirror and a desk. I have to hand it to Sahoma for having some neat visual ideas. Everything else in the movie is pretty stupid. Character logic is worse than usual. At the beginning of the movie, the house mother tells the girls staying in the house that there's a spare key in the basement. At the end of the movie, Beth and another girl are inside the house. They believe they need the spare key to get out the front door. I know that you can unlock doors from the inside. For some reason, that knowledge escapes them. Anyways, they get the key and go to the front door. They then realize it was unlocked all along. Damn, y'all. At another point in the movie, a bunch of characters are still alive and have barricaded themselves in a bedroom on the second floor of the house. Perfectamundo. Stay there. They don't. Someone just happens to have a deployable fire ladder, which the group slowly attempts to use to exit the house. It doesn't go well. The ladder is disconnected when Bobby starts using it. 
He does somehow make it high enough to grab the windowsill, which leads to the best laugh of the entire movie. Everyone still alive in the room starts half-acidly smacking Bobby's hands to make him fall. It's one of the dumbest looking things I've ever seen. Bobby does eventually fall back to the ground floor. A little bit passes. Bobby then jumps through the second story window into the house. Wait, what? How is that? How, how could he possibly? The logistics don't make any sense. How in the hell? This is where my brain gave up trying to make sense of anything in the movie. My favorite character in Sohoma is Craig. Joe Nassi played Craig. My headcanon is that Craig is a cyborg. He robotically reveals to everyone that his girlfriend Tracy's dead and that he's okay. If cyborg Craig couldn't defeat Bobby, no one can. Bobby and Beth can sense each other's presences. You ever see Star Wars where Rey and Kylo Ren can hang out with the Force? It's like that. Star Wars stole from Sohoma. Bobby is really a bad dude. He goes to a store and steals a knife. He then stabs the shopkeep with the knife. If you were going to come into someone's shop and kill them with something from their inventory, at least pay for it first, you big jerk. Absolutely despicable. The gore is solid, it's all stabs. Stab, 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 Bobby loves to stab. During the last tussle of the movie, Bobby stabs Beth in the butt a bunch. Stop stabbing my butt. Sorority House Massacre is a messy, generic slasher. If you need a slasher fix real bad, consider checking it out. If you aren't jonesing so hard you're having physical slasher withdrawals, you might as well search a bit more for a better slasher. Number 2, Ghost in the Machine, 1993, directed by Rachel Talaley. Carl, a serial killer called the Address Book Killer, comes into possession of Terry's address book. Before he's able to kill her, her son Josh, and everyone in her address book, Carl is in a car accident. He's taken to the hospital and ends up turning into an electronic killer after lightning strikes and kills his mortal body while he's in an MRI. Cyber Carl then starts killing everyone in Terry's address book with the help of the internet and electronic devices. Terry and Josh team up with a computer guy named Bram to take out Cyber Carl with a giant magnet. Cyber Carl, the address book killer, and Lightning are the killers. Okay, so Carl is a bad guy, but I wouldn't say the Lightning killed him in self-defense. Carl wasn't even murdering at the time of his death. When you hear Ghost in the Machine, I doubt you picture a weird 90s slasher about a digital killer, yet here we are. Ghost in the Machine felt like two movies smashed into one. You have a movie about a young teen boy that's tech savvy. That movie stars Josh, who's basically John Connor from T2 if he didn't come from a broken home. The other movie is a weird, intense slasher featuring the work of Carl, the serial killer. The movies end up colliding about 45 minutes in to create a singular what-am-I-watching movie, but Tech Josh and Killer Carl probably should have been kept separate. In Tech Josh, you watch Josh, this boy that loves computers, try to win the heart of the recycled babe. A girl that's at least a couple years older than him who picks up recycling from Josh's house and babysits him. Josh wants to date her so bad. Unfortunately, Cyber Carl interrupts the Tech Josh movie. Carl zaps himself into a dishwasher. He then agitates it. 
I don't know about y'all, but my dishwasher doesn't have an agitate setting. If you don't rustle your dirty pots and pans, jimmies, did you really clean them? In short, water ends up all over the place and Recycle Bay is electrocuted. This is the worst looking death in the movie. Picture really old electricity effects. The funniest kill in the movie is when a loser guy Terry was dating goes to the bathroom. He uses one of those wall mounted hand dryers which randomly spits out flames. This happens right after a car death for the guy is teased for what feels like forever. Cyber Carl doesn't play. The best death and effects work in the entire movie is microwave based. Carl cooks a man alive with the microwave after the door explodes off. I don't think you could logistically cook an entire room with a doorless microwave, but it was a delight to watch everything in the kitchen melt while the victim's skin bubbled as he cooked. Unfortunately, that's the first kill and it's the only truly decent one. Cyber Carl is a dangerous rascal and all, but at least when he decides to murder someone, he knows exactly who he's dispatching and why. Well, because he wants to, but at one point in Ghost in the Machine, Terry wises up to Carl's electronic trickery and unplugs everything in her house. Carl still really wants to kill Terry's mom, who's in the house, so he sends the entire police force to it. The cops show up, instantly start drawing guns and unload on the house after a transformer outside explodes. Um, excuse me? So none of you officers have any idea what the situation is, but all of you jackasses will light up a house at the drop of a hat? I'm a broken record, but you can't spell incompetent without C-O-P. Pet warning, Carl puts on a tape of a dog swimming. Terry's dog Axel watches the video. Axel then instantly decides to go swimming. Carl then activates the electronic pool cover to trap and drown Axel. Don't worry, when we see dead Axel, he's magically turned into a stuffed animal. I'm assuming Axel tossed a stuffed dog into the pool to trick Carl. Still, I find it hysterical that Axel decided to go swimming because he saw a dog on TV do it. At the end of the movie, Carl materializes in the physical world as some sort of electrical molecule man thing. What I'm trying to say is he basically appears as a cyber ghost, exactly like in Scooby-Doo and the Cyber Chase. Even after seeing ghost Carl, Terry tries to shoot him with a gun. I know. The power of gun normally beats everything. But did you really think shooting a cyber ghost was going to be effective, Terry? The acting? It's not great. Chris Mulkey plays the charismatic lead that helps save the day, but he doesn't have any charisma. I'm not sure why he was cast. I cared way more about the character Frank, the microwaved man, who genuinely thought Terry was having a pajama party after he saw that she received a bunch of unsolicited lingerie from Carl at the office. I would have had a pajama party with you, buddy. R.I.P. Frank. You were too wholesome for this world. The real pull of the movie is all the zany digital special effects that are used to try and visually represent how the internet works, amongst other things like electronic ghost downloads. The imagery is a lot of fun and there are some okay kills. The last 30 minutes are rough. 
Consider checking out Ghost in the Machine if you want to watch a 90s movie that's confused about how the internet works that's not hackers. Number 3, Uncle Peckerhead 2020, directed by Matt Lawrence. Judy, Max, and Mel are in a band. Right before they go on tour, their van is repossessed. They meet a man named Peckerhead who offers to drive them around in his van. Peck just so happens to turn into a monster at midnight. Monster Peck kills people during the tour. Judy finds out Peck has killed even more people than the band knew about and has been injecting himself with water instead of sedatives that were supposed to control the monster. Peck is kicked out of the band. The band goes to prison for a bit. Once out, Peck shows up to one of their shows looking for revenge. Peckerhead is the killer. I don't think Peckerhead is ever referred to as Uncle Peckerhead, but I could be wrong. The main nickname that the character is called is Peck. A horror comedy about a rock band with a monster roadie? That's right up my alley. Uncle Peckerhead is full of charm and heart. It's not a perfect movie, but the heart of a movie goes a long way for me. The acting is pretty solid. Sure, there's awkward delivery here and there, but I really like the fact that the cast felt like actual people. Chet Siegel played Judy. She's good in the role. Judy is the Debbie Downer protagonist. Yeah, it's a weird mix. Normally, the main character isn't a stick in the mud. Judy's always telling the band that Peckerhead can't just be killing people all willy-nilly. Come on, Judy, lighten up, dude. Mel was played by Ruby McCollister. She comes off as a friend you'd hang out with at bars. Jeff Riddle played Max. Not only did he play Max, but Riddle also wrote and performed all the band's music, which I would love to add to my library. I haven't been able to find the songs from the movie as of this recording, but I'm hoping at least one or two of the tracks are fully released. Peckerhead was played by David Littleton, who's incredibly endearing as the character. You grow to love Peck, which is why it hurts so much when the band has to turn on him. If Peck would have stuck to only killing insufferable douchebags, we all could have looked the other way. Well, all of us but Judy. Peck's on-screen victims are a sleazy promoter, aggressive metalheads, and a band of jerks. One thing I have to call out in Uncle Peckerhead is the anti-metalhead propaganda. Everyone in the band has disdain for metalheads. The two random metalheads that show up in the movie are awful garbage boys. I found metalheads to be some of the nicest people I've ever met. Sure, there are probably some bad apples as there are with any group, but I thought we all agreed that metalheads are a friendly group of people. The gore in Uncle Peckerhead is practical and ridiculous. Not all of the gore sells, but all of it's fun. A head is ripped off with a spine still attached, a face is clawed off, hearts are removed, and people are eaten. It's a good time. The makeup effects and design of Monster Peckerhead aren't anything special. It gets the job done, but a more interesting design would have definitely added a bit of uniqueness that's missing. Monster Peck ends up looking like a vampire pulled straight out of Buffy. There's a lot of humor that lands in the movie, but there's also a lot of stuff that falls flat. I wish the percentage of jokes I actually found funny was a little higher. If the comedic acting was a bit stronger, or the script was punched up just a smidge, I think Uncle Peckerhead could be the next big horror comedy. As it stands, Uncle Peckerhead is still worth a watch for anyone that's into horror comedies and music. 
they better release at least one of the songs. If I'm remembering correctly, one was performed in its entirety. Just slap that tune on Spotify or YouTube. My ears want to hear it on repeat. I'm excited to see what the team behind this movie does in the future. Number 4, Planet of the Vampires, 1965, directed by Mario Bava. Two ships try to locate the source of a distress beacon. Once close to the source, the ships are pulled down to a planet. One ship, captained by a man named Mark, has no casualties upon landing, since Mark is able to calm everyone down after a force makes them murderous. Everyone on the other ship kills each other. Mark and his crew investigate. They bury the bodies of people from the other ship. People keep acting possessed. A crew member is killed and said the dead captain of the other ship was the culprit. Mark talks to the other captain, who popped up saying he never died, about this and it's revealed that an alien race called the Aurons are using the dead bodies to survive. They lured the ships to the planet since they can't live on it any longer. Mark and his crew fight the Aurons. Only Mark and two other crew members, Sonya and Wes, make it on the ship to leave the planet. Wes realizes Mark and Sonya have been taken over by Aurons. Wes destroys a component of the ship which forces Aron, Mark, and Sonya to land on Earth. The Aurons are the killers. They were responsible for making everyone want to kill each other and for killing crew members like Bert. Bert was a chill dude that no one shed a tear for after he died. Poor Bert. Planet of the Vampires, more like Planet of the Corpse Possessors. The Italian name for the movie is Terrori Nello Spazio, which translates to Terror in Space. There are no vampires, but there is in fact Terror in Space. I watched this as part of my Blood and Bones series, the weekly horror movie watch party that you can tune into by going to twitch.tv slash bonesawbaker at 7 p.m. Central Time on Mondays. The chat had an interesting theory that the planet was the vampire, which makes sense seeing as the planet sucked the ships down onto it. The planet is way more vampiric than the Aurons. The idea that all vampires are zombies, but not all zombies are vampires, was brought up. Is a vampire not someone who dies after being bitten and comes back to life with a hunger for humans? Blood in particular, but still. I was surprised to see a sci-fi movie from Mario Bava. If you're a long-time listener, I've talked a decent bit about Mr. Bava on past episodes. One of my favorite movies I've ever seen for the podcast is His Black Sunday. Blood in Black Lace is also beautiful. That's the word for his films, beautiful. No, gorgeous. Like everything else I've seen from Mario Bava, Planet of the Vampires is a visual delight. The colors and framing are amazing. I was bored at times with the goings on in the movie, but everything always looked spectacular. The suits the crew wear are amazing. The random jogging suits some of the crew change into to investigate the planet also look great. Why the crew isn't wearing their helmets in thicker suits the entire time they're exploring an alien planet is beyond me. The costume and set design are simply stunning. All the effects work was done live. I thought it was really fun when one crew member would constantly stare into a red blinking light that was supposed to be some sort of scanner. I'm not seeing anything, Captain. 
That's because you're staring into a flashing red light, silly. I really like the idea of the devices on the ships that rejected meteors. It does seem that there should be more than one of those bad boys per ship, though, seeing as they were impossible to fix if anything happened to them. Like so many Italian films of the same time period, all the cast members would speak their native language on set and be dubbed later on, this makes some of the delivery quite humorous. For instance, a crew member thinks he saw something, so he calls Bert over. Bert saunters over and drops the most carefree, What's up? I have ever heard. Throughout the movie, the crew is holding ray guns. Everyone I was watching with took sides on whether or not the guns would actually be fired after going completely unused for the first hour. I was team at least one shot, and Hot Dog did my team win. The rays were in fact fired. Well, the gun shot more of a blast of hot air, but they were used. They didn't seem all that effective against the Aurons, but super effective against the crew members. There are giant alien skeletons that I thought the Aurons might inhabit and move around, but unfortunately there are zero giant alien skeleton attacks in Planet of the Vampires. The gore effects aren't the most stellar, but the scratched up faces and decomposed torsos worked well enough. Consider checking out Planet of the Vampires with a group of friends and beverages. It can be a little slow at times, but it's a gorgeous Mario Bava film. Number 5, The Curse of La Llorona, 2019, directed by Michael Chavez. Linda Cardellini is a single mom with two kids. She's also a CPS caseworker. She frees two kids that are locked in a closet against the kids and their mom's wishes. La Llorona then kills the kids. Linda's kids then get the mark of La Llorona. Linda ends up getting it too. With the help of a former priest, Linda destroys La Llorona by stabbing the weeping woman with a cross made from a fire tree. La Llorona is the killer. To start things off, I'll be referring to this as the curse. The curse is hilariously bad. Like, what are we even doing levels of bad? The curse is part of the running joke that is the Conjuring universe. I remember kind of liking the Conjuring and receiving mean looks from people that were in the theater with me when I was laughing at the unintentionally funny moments in The Conjuring 2. Those two and now The Curse are the only Conjuring universe movies I've seen. The curse is silly, silly garbage. Normally, there are cheap yet basic in that they startle you a tad jump scares in these Conjuring movies. I think one jump scare worked in The Curse. If I'm being generous, there's a jump scare where a little boy sees La Llorona disappear. She then comes abruptly out of the shadows in a completely different spot to grab the boy. It kind of worked. Everything else is just awful. There's a handful of jump scares done in broad daylight. La Llorona is showcased front and center under lights the first time she appears, and the design is horrendous. It's one of the most generic, scary ladies I've ever seen. It's like the crew went to a haunted house attraction in October and picked up a haunt actor in a zombie bride costume they threw together at the last minute. It's rough. If your scary lady is going to look 100% lame when shown outside of the shadows, 
Do not constantly show her fully bathed in light. La Llorona's face should not have been shown at all. She's wearing a wedding dress. Cover her face with the veil the whole time. Don't show me her dumb dollar store yellow contacts overdone makeup looking face every two seconds. There's one sequence that I was preparing to give kudos for. A little girl has a translucent umbrella. She can see La Llorona through the umbrella. The umbrella ends up in the pool. Perfect. Now we just need the little girl to go over to the umbrella, look through it, see La Llorona in the water, and run away while screaming. It's a layup. Instead, when the little girl goes over to the umbrella, La Llorona just appears next to her and grabs her wrist while screaming. This all happens during the day. It's awful. It's just awful. La Llorona's whole thing is that you hear her crying. Do you know how easy it is to make crying creepy? It's day one spooky stuff. La Llorona rarely cries in the curse. I think she only does it for two seconds at the end of the movie. Usually she's roaring and yelling in people's faces instead. Awful. Did I find it funny? Yes. The curse is so tone deaf in what it's trying to do that it becomes absurd. Want me to blow your mind? The director of this dumpster fire, Michael Chavez, is helming another conjuring film after creating this disaster. Linda, you good? Why did you sign on for this movie, Miss Cardellini? Linda's not great in this. No one is great in this. I hate that Linda doesn't believe that the ex-priest can use mystical stuff to help her after seeing that something like La Llorona is real. That's a big pet peeve of mine. A demon just ate my son! You're saying you can cast spells to stop the demon? <laughs> you dumb clown man, spells aren't real. Ugh. I guess La Llorona was just a vampire all along, seeing as staking her in the heart with a cross was enough to destroy her. That doesn't explain how she was able to hang out in the sunlight, though. La Llorona recreating that scene in The Grudge where the spooky ghost girl puts her fingers in a bathing person's hair was funny. Do I recommend The Curse of La Llorona? If you and some pals are looking for a goofy sitcom pilot where a single mom and her kids share the house with La Llorona as hijinks ensue, then yeah, I do recommend it. If you're looking for a horror movie, do not waste your time with The Curse of La Llorona. Number 6, La Llorona, 2019, directed by Jairo Bustamante. A Guatemalan general named Enrique Monteverde is found guilty of war crimes, including genocide. Enrique is able to return to his home and stay there. The public constantly protests outside his house. A new housekeeper named Alma arrives. Victims of the genocide start surrounding the home. Through dreams, Enrique's wife Carmen is shown that Enrique drowned Alma's children and murdered her. In a possessed rage, Carmen strangles Enrique. Enrique and the men under his command are the killers. Wait, that summary doesn't make this sound like a La Llorona movie? Well, Alma is a new take on the character. She does some textbook La Llorona stuff like get spooky with water and loudly mourn the deaths of her children. La Llorona is more of a family-based drama. In the house with Enrique and Carmen is also their daughter Natalia and her daughter Sarah. 
as well as Valeriana, Enrique's daughter from his Being an Awful War Criminal Prime. What happens when you find out daddy slash grandpa is a heinous genocidal murderer rapist? That's the meat of the movie, the interfamilial drama. Natalia loves her father who has been good to her but now knows that he's an evil man. She even comes to the realization that he disappeared her husband. The framing in La Llorona is fantastic. There are multiple sequences that are single shots that a lot of time is spent dwelling on. There is very little camera movement during these solemn moments besides slow zooms in and out. For example, a native woman provides her testimony against Enrique during a packed court proceeding as the camera pulls out at a slow, deliberate pace. After this scene where Enrique is found guilty, there's a shot of Carmen and Natalia talking about Enrique while surrounded by a sea of empty chairs as the camera slowly pushes in on them. The camera work is haunting and incredibly effective at setting the somber tone. All of the performances are powerful. Sabrina De La Oz and Margarita Kenny Feek are the standouts as Natalia and Carmen, respectively. Maria Mercedes Caroy brings an inherent oddness to Alma that keeps you guessing. Is she really a ghost or a peculiar girl? I mean, it's obvious from the get-go that she's the movie's incarnation of La Llorona, but if I didn't know the title of the movie, she would have kept me guessing. There aren't any abysmally done jump scares in La Llorona, which is a breath of fresh air after the dumpster fire that was The Curse. Before La Llorona, I didn't know anything about the Guatemalan genocide of Mayan civilians that was heavily backed by the United States. The more I learn about the U.S., the more I realize how evil this country really is. The amount of U.S.-backed coups that have just led to suffering is astounding. Are we the baddies? Seems like it to me. The imagery in La Llorona is exquisite, from the native veiled woman testifying to Alma washing her dress in the tub. La Llorona is filled with picturesque shots. One thing I thought I would have a gripe with was Enrique firing a revolver into a pool where Sarah was faux scuba diving with his oxygen tank and hitting her in the arm. I had it in my head that Mythbusters had proven you can't shoot someone in the water when you are outside it since the bullet will basically stop traveling as soon as it hits the water. Turns out it depends on a bunch of different factors, so it is possible that Enrique could shoot his granddaughter while she was playing in the pool. Fun, huh? The shakeup with the La Llorona myth helps make Alma a more vengeful character. Soldiers drowned her kids and then Enrique killed her. Now her ghost wants to kill Enrique and the other genocidal military men. That's a ghost we can all get behind. I believe the most widely known La Llorona legend is the one where a wife had a husband who fell out of love with her. He still loved their kids but started sleeping with another woman. The wife found out and drowned the children in a rage. After realizing what she'd done, she then drowned herself. She then began scouring the earth as a ghost for her children's souls so she could get into heaven. This legend does share some similarities to the Greek mythological figure Medea, who murdered her kids to get back at her cheating baby daddy. I wonder if La Llorona was in any way inspired by Medea. La Llorona is a powerful movie that I recommend checking out. Just note that it's not really a horror movie, it's a familial drama about the stains of crime's past. Number 7, La Llorona. 
a parody of my Sharona. I apologize in advance. kids he loves them kids wade into the water i'm la yorona cheat and break my heart torn apart such a blind rage gotta drown the kids for revenge i can't disengage don't 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 drown now Woo! la 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 yorona now i'm feeling quite upset Quite upset, ended underwater. Now I'm La Yorona, crying. My white dress is wet. It's all wet. Have you seen my kids? It's me, La Yorona. Cheat and break my heart, torn apart. Such a blind rage, gonna drown the kids for revenge. I can't disengage. Don't, don't, don't drown now. Woo! La 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 Yorona. La 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 Yorona. Been. Hey, familiar kiddos, come with La Yorona. Todd and Sue, I don't know them. I'm wrong again. Death count keeps rising for this La Yorona. Cheat and break my heart, torn apart. Such a blind rage, gonna drown the kids for revenge. I can't disengage. Don't, don't, don't drown now. Woo! Don't, don't, don't drown now. Woo! La, 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 Yorona. La 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 Yorona La 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 Yorona La 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 Yorona
That's a wrap for Blank is the Killer 78, Sorority Slashing, Cyber Death, and Crying Ghosts. Recording that was much more of a pain in the ass than I thought it would be. If your ears are happy about what they just experienced, consider leaving a rating or review on iTunes. It's looking like Hulark is on a permanent hiatus, which is strangely sad to me. Who knows what will be on the next episode? All I know is that it will be out on September 6th. Until then, if you hear a woman crying about her dead kids, stay away from any bodies of water.